Hi, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we actually wanted to start this one off with a little bit of a correction and just calling ourselves out for last week's episode. So when I did my case, which, as a reminder, it was the murder of Terry Zinner. She was a social worker that went to visit one of her clients, Andrew Elmaker, and he attacked her and killed her. And it was pointed out to us, and we also realized it after the fact as well. We did spend a lot of the time in my case talking about Andrew and not as much as Terry. And you guys know that we do always try to focus on the victim. And in this case, they were both victims in their own way. But I think we let our thoughts on Andrew's situation overshadow Terry. And she lost her life. So... We just want to apologize for that. And thank you so much for those that reached out to us to let us know. We like your feedback in all forms. You know, we want to be better. And when we need to be called out, call us out. So thank you. Absolutely. It's definitely a situation where because we always try to focus on the victim, when we have a case where there's victims on each side, I think we can sometimes swing too far the other way or if it's an issue that is something we're passionate about we can focus a lot of our attention on the killer which at the end of the day yes they're both victims but terry was murdered right and she lost her life doing her job yeah and i i don't think we gave as much time as she deserved and as much focus but yes mirroring what Brittany said we love when y'all call us out when y'all give us feedback because a lot of times it's things that maybe we didn't realize came across in a certain way or things that y'all noticed that we just didn't so it's really great for us to kind of have that feedback and be able to recognize when we do fail so that we can make sure to be better moving forward yeah I think that's perfect. I think that's a perfect way to start this off. And so obviously, we're going to be very cognizant of this in today's episode, which you guys, Halloween is in just a couple of days. And oh my god, it is. It is. This is going to wrap up our spooky, ooky, horrible, crazy October. I hate the word ooky. It made me think of like The Nightmare Before Christmas, which I just realized I should watch that movie. I'm wearing my Hocus Pocus shirt with the Sanderson sisters. Oh, I'm just wearing a t-shirt from work. Also, that's Different kind of spooky. Yeah. (laughs) What are you for Halloween? An employee. Honestly, yeah. This year, I mean, we've been in a global pandemic now for 100 years. So Halloween, I don't know about y'all, it snuck up on me even though we're literally doing like like a halloween october podcast thing for y'all i don't know how but it still felt like it snuck up on me and i'm like oh right halloween's coming right around the corner i mean obviously i'm not dressing up and going out and doing anything i'm i'm totally happy social distancing and let's be real the real scary day happens just a few days after halloween i mean that is the damn truth yeah, I'm not doing anything for Halloween this year. I did get my decorations out like a couple days ago, which I have like one little pumpkin thing. It's like a pumpkin snowman, which is really weird. It's not a snowman, but it's like a pumpkin man, like three pumpkins stacked on top. And the top one is jack-o'-lantern and he has arms oh. and he's wearing a sign that says trick or treat. And then okay. I have a skull 
and and then a skull candle. So, there but you just go. like a, a regular human skull, you like found in the dirt, right? I dug it up. up. Um, I visited the graveyard. That's fucked up. That's real fucked up. <laughs> oh, it's not a fucking human skull. Yeah, obviously, it's or a cat an animal. Skull. No, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I saw where you were going to go there, and I cut you off. <laughs> Uh, it's styrofoam yeah hobby lobby it's got glitter black roses on it (laughs) i mean we've probably talked about killers who would put glitter and black roses on a human skull i'm just saying i mean Um, didn't like Dahmer like bedazzled or something (laughs) i i don't i don't know that like with an actual like bedazzler that he that you call the one eight hundred number and it's like three easy payments of nineteen ninety nine <laughs> and you if you call now you get a second bedazzler and so no. he's sitting there just like <laughs> I don't know no how um, I I don't think he bedazzled but like in all reality he did have that shrine which is really creepy so yes you're right we do talk about killers that probably would dip a skull in glitter yeah i don't have any halloween decorations because i don't have a ton of space and so physically i cannot bring myself to buy things that i'm like i'm going to put this up it's going to be visible for four weeks and then the other 48 weeks out of the year it's gonna take up valuable closet space in my one hall closet i can't do it i don't have any decorations for the winter holidays for halloween i don't know new year's whatever other holidays people decorate for i don't have anything for them i'm gonna in november go to trader joe's buy a real like pine tree reef because they're only like six bucks and that's that's it when it dies, it dies. You have a hall closet? Yeah, it's just big enough for like three coats and my tools. And that's it. So, no, I'm not going to like fill it with, I don't know, some plastic pumpkins, some <laughs> snowflakes, and a turkey. A Christmas tree? Oh, well. I was capturing all the holidays, but a live were... turkey. Gobble, gobble. Her name's Pegatha. All right. Well, before we get into revealing what the topic is, I mean, you guys have already read the title, but you know how we reveal. I'm just going to remind you guys about Patreon. If you haven't checked it out, hop on over to our Patreon where you can find all of our murder minis. You can find our live Q&A. It's no longer live, but it's posted if you're interested in seeing that conversation. But we have a lot of new Patreon members who have signed up in the last couple of weeks. Thank you guys so much. You'll get your shout outs. But I just wanted you guys to know that we're we're seeing it happen. And we're really excited to do some Patreon director picks coming up these next few episodes. We'll do some of those this year. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it means you skip through this part of the episode every time or just haven't checked out Patreon. So hop on over. It's like patreon.com slash blood and wine pod boom i will say in all fairness when i listen to a podcast i've been known to occasionally be a skipper so i get it but also i'm just saying if you like our banter kind of the beginning in this and our wine is when you get our best banter all i'm saying also make sure to subscribe on uh whatever platform podcast platform you're listening to us on uh just find out wherever it says subscribe hit that button that way every tuesday when we have a new episode you'll get it automatically boom right there all the work is done for you you just get to sit back relax and listen to the sound of our buttery velvet voices talking about murder i think tyler's is a little bit more buttery velvet mine is 
this weird scratchiness that's just of the voice. But oh he- my god, be nicer to yourself. <laughs> you have a podcast. I'm pretty sure if your voice, listeners, I think you can agree with me. I'm pretty sure if Britney's voice was what apparently she's making it sound like a cat in heat, uh, <laughs> y'all probably wouldn't listen. So I'm just saying. Okay, I like my voice. I like it better now than before, but it's also because I've heard it so much now. I'm just kind of like, it is what it is. Oh, that is so true. Like, y'all, you know how as people, we hate the sound of our voices recorded? You want to get rid of that hate? Start a podcast and edit them. Because at this point, with how much like we do our editing, we listen to ourselves all the time, I think I sound great recorded. I have like... I used to hate the sound of my voice. I was like, oh my God, I'm so gay, which I am. You're damn right. <laughs> also, that's what I sound like. And so I'm just saying, y'all want to be better at public speaking at work, record yourself, listen to it over and over, and you will not give a shit what you sound like. No, it's true. I just remember starting this, how we were like, oh my God, it's so weird. And this is probably the first time we've talked about it in a while. But yeah, we also basically started recording this podcast in an open cave that was my <laughs> living room. So, But listeners, you don't care about that. You care about today's topic and today's episode. And it's also one that we've very much covered in a lot of episodes before, but we weren't calling it this. But to close out our spooky Halloween month, we are going to talk about some gruesome murders. So here's a warning straight up front. This episode, there's a lot. It's gory. And you you've you heard it right now. So if this is not your cup of tea, then, you know, maybe skip this one. But we've gone into detail before and not given such a warning. But I just wanted to do that in this episode because I know mine's pretty bad. Well, I'm glad you said something because uh, mine definitely needs a trigger warning. And honestly... Yes, we've done a lot of cases that are gruesome, but I kind of went about this being like, all right, what's the kind of case that could top all of that? And I cannot believe that this current case is not one I've done before, or the one I'm about to do is not one I've done before. And dear God, it fits into the Halloween of everything. And it is, I would say, one of, if not the most gruesome cases I have ever done. So, yes, full-on, gruesome, gore, horrifying trigger warning right here. But before we get into the horror of these gruesome cases, we're going to drink some wine. We're going to open up our wine and we're going to talk about it. And I'm excited to tell you about mine. But Tyler, what wine did you pick for this week? So the wine I'm drinking today, it's one I found at my little bodega, as per usual. I'd never seen it before. I was really excited because on the bottle, it says it's a 95 point. And I was like, oh, damn. Okay, for 10 bucks? Yes. Well, maybe it's not a 95 point. But it is the 2018 John Umbach Personal Selection Pinot Noir from Aconcagua Valley, Chile. Why do you say maybe it's not a 95? Because while it has a uh, sticker that says it is gold rated 95 it's rated by the wine owner and on the back it tells the story about how he tasted this wine and he said he liked it so much he rated it a 95 and i'm like it's your wine (laughs) you shouldn't be able to get to grade your own wine that's like grading your own essay 
I know. I'm like, yeah, of course you're going to say it's like in the 90s. But it's still a Chilean Pinot Noir, which I'm like, okay, I'm a fan. There was not a ton about it online. Pretty much all I could find was that it is lush and smooth with flavors of ripe plums and crushed berries with a hint of spice. Enjoy it on its own or pair it with lamb, salmon, or grilled chicken. So I'm like, okay, it's a Pinot Noir. And then I was like, okay, let me find out. I've never heard of John Umbach. I've never heard of this wine before. So I start looking. It's a JV Wines company. Which, if y'all don't know, I'm going to name some of the JV wine companies or vineyards they own. And you're going to be like, oh, wow, those sound familiar. So uh, JV Wines owns Sweet Bitch, Coolitos, Scarlet of Paris, In Situ, Venus San Esteban, Belvento, and Rio Alto, among like a ton of others. And I'm pretty sure I've done almost all of those on this podcast. I know I've definitely done, like, the Scarlet of Paris. I've done Scarlet of Paris, Sweet Bitch, Venus San Esteban, and Belvento. Those are the ones I know, because I remember. And honestly, now I'm a little worried, because if memory serves me correct, I don't think I was a big fan of them. So, (laughs) (laughs) but we'll see. It's a new wine. It's a different thing. Maybe I'm going to love this. Maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, and I loved these past ones. So uh, I'm going to get this open. Yeah, I'm interested to see what you think. It's also been a while since either of us has done a Pinot Noir. So yeah, I almost did another bubbly. I almost grabbed a bottle of the Pisecco Prosecco, which is also owned by JV Wines. But then I was like, you know, three Proseccos in a row. Let me, you know, mix things up with a Pinot Noir. Yeah. Party time. Does it smell sweet? Your nose turned up. I mean, I don't think any red wine smells good right when you pull the cork and you get that first, like, out-of-the-bottle whiff. That is a good point. It is always kind of like a punch in the face. Yeah, because it it smells alcoholy. Mmm, smells like booze. But see, already it's starting to, like, I don't know, do its thing. I mean, I'm getting something. Maybe, like, berry skins or... Like cherry skin. I don't know. I'm I'm just imagining fruit skin. But I don't know. I'm not getting a huge aroma from it. So I'm going to let mine breathe just a little bit while you get into yours. What wine are you drinking today? I am doing the 2019 19 Crimes Snoop Dogg Cali Red Blend. And if you've seen this one in the store, you've either picked it up or you've been like me and you're like, oh shit, I've got to pick that one up. If you remember... These 19 Crimes, the wines have those living wine labels. And so before I tell you about this wine, I'm just going to let Snoop tell you a couple of things about this wine. I don't think he talks about the wine, but I'm just going to let y'all talk to Snoop. They call me the dog father, king of the West Coast, and I was born at Defy Society. I believed in myself when the world tried to train a dog not to. Gotta thank myself for that. I already did, but I'm going to do it again. Glasses up! Let's make a toast to success and nothing less. Yes, sir. Oh, so it's just like Snoop TikToking, basically. Yeah, Snoop talk. Snoop dog talk. But anyway, so this wine ranges from anywhere like 10 to 13-ish dollars, depending on where you get it. I think I got this one for 11 And it's a blend of Merlot, Zinfandel, and Petite Syrah. So this is a very bold, full, and dense wine. Yeah. 
It's got strong black and blue fruit notes up front. A lot of that comes from that petite Syrah. And it's complemented by very bright red, slightly candied fruit notes in the background from that Zinfandel. So if you've had a Zinfandel, you know it's got a little bit of sweetness there at the end. There's some dark toasted oak that ties everything together. And it has a slightly sweet finish. Makes me a little bit nervous. It is a red blend. I knew what I was getting myself into. I had to try this wine, but I wanted to see what people thought. So Tyler, I took a cue out of your book and I looked at some reviews. So I've got three reviews kind of similar. This one person said that this wine is for the Zen and Merlot lovers. It drinks sweet and heavy with red fruit throughout. So that scared me a little bit. Another person said it's a really solid anytime crowd pleaser, rich, bold, inky, and smooth with flavors of cassis, cassis, I never remember, raspberry, and a bit of leather, jammy and quite sweet with well-rounded acidity. And then the last person said cherry and strawberry hints with chocolate and coffee notes, maybe a little leather, soft round finish, not bad for the price. Basically, this sounds like a red blend. It does sound like a blend between Merlot, Zen, and Petit Syrah. It's like I knew what I was getting myself into. I think this is going to be one of those wines that's really good for people who are maybe newer to reds, although it is bold. So let's see. As Snoop said, let's drink up. So I'm going to open this. I'm actually going to be using one of my new red wine glasses that I got from the Pontetoc Pond to Talk Vineyards in Fredericksburg. It's like a German wine garden. So cute. But here we go. Oh. Hey, Snoop's on the cork. I mean, I assumed. Oh, there he is. Hey, Snoop. Doesn't he have a baking show with Martha Stewart? I feel like he, he does. absolutely has a cookbook that I was looking at the other day. All right, let's pour this bad boy. Okay, well, that, that is, is purple. Yep, that is purple. Very, very purple. That smells sweet. <laughs> it's, I mean, it smells very fruity. It's extremely fruit forward. It almost smells like mulled wine. Oh, Lord. Okay. So it's, I've got those notes of baking spices. It really smells like when your mulled wine isn't hot anymore. Oh, speaking of mulled wine, sort of, I talked to uh, the owners and the wine importers at my local Total Wine, and they're probably going to be getting some Glock in. In November. Like real Glug, though? Yes, like from Sweden, Finland. I think he also mentioned Germany, and I don't think that is Glug. I think that is... I don't know the German name for it, but it's more of a mulled wine, which is essentially what Glug is. But I'm excited, because if I get it, I'm going to buy 300 cases of it. And also, I know the Glug that I'm thinking of is Epoglug, which is like an apple wine, and it's not the normal and so it's even harder to find, but I'm trying. I'm going to try my ass off, y'all. So obviously you're going to do it on the podcast, right? If they do have one. Oh, 100%. But um, okay, I think with that, bottoms up and the devil laughs. Cheers. Cheers. Do you want to go first or do you want me? Um, I mean, I'll go first. Mine's fine. It's kind of boring. Oh, I'm not getting a really? ton of... Yeah. I mean, as we've discussed, I don't really know what a plum tastes like, but I know plum is not a strong flavor. And that's, yeah, I'm kind of getting this out of this wine. It's just, there's not a lot going on. 
That's funny because this weekend I actually told Mama I have trouble picking out plum in a wine. Like, I'm like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to taste when people say plum. When I think plum, I think red stone fruit. So the similar flavor profiles you would get from like a peach or a nectarine in a wine, but cross that with when you're getting like red berries or red cherries. You know how you can tell when it's like, oh, this is red berries, even though n- n- what? But like that kind of notes, basically like a deeper, non sharp, non citrusy, smooth, round nectarine is what I'm assuming a plum is. I don't know. Maybe I'm fully off kilter, but that's kind of what I'm getting. It's just not that flavorful. I, it's a fine wine. It's a dangerous wine because it's very easy to drink. And so I could see if this was a wine you poured when you're like watching a movie, doing your thing, looking down 45 minutes into the movie and being like, I am on my last glass because it's it doesn't have any kind of sharpness. It's very smooth. It would be a great red wine for someone real, in, like, new, inching their way into reds. Because it doesn't have a lot of the bold or, like, mouth-drying tannins that reds have, generally. Yeah. It's a very smooth, very mellow Pinot Noir. I would even go as far to say... I think even having it with grilled chicken or salmon, those flavors would take over this wine. Okay, so drink it alone. I mean, it's like a maybe with buttered noodles, if you want to fully taste the wine. Well, ours have some similarities and some differences. Do they? In the sense that, like I said, I think this is a good intro for people for red wine. This is very fruity. I do get notes of oak when I'm drinking it, very much not when I smell it, but it's got blackberries, blueberries, some of those oaky notes. It's super jammy. I agree, it's quite sweet. It is very much not my type of wine. I'm not really tasting any coffee notes, like one of the reviewers said, but I I get those hints of chocolate. It is very smooth. Do you remember when we... Sorry, do you remember we had the Apothic Brew? <laughs> yeah, that was disgusting. I don't even want to think about that wine. This one, people who like red blends will like this wine. It's a little sweet for me. I am going to struggle a little bit. But if you like jammy, fruity wines, this is a fantastic combination of those flavors. I also didn't pick up on any of that leather. For me, I'm just getting oak, not leather. I can see how, like, oak and leather are similar enough pr- flavor profiles that mm-hmm. they could be interchangeable depending on your own palate. Yeah, I would say this would not be considered by, like, a sommelier as a sweet wine, but for a Brittany, it's a sweet wine. Yeah, okay, fair. But, you know, I feel like, what would this be good with? Dessert? Barbecue ribs. Actually, maybe. those Like, like a sweet the no- Texas barbecue? Yeah, the notes in the barbecue would probably complement this really well. But hey, you know, I bet there are things in Snoop's cookbook that would pair wonderfully with this wine. Like a weed brownie? <laughs> I don't. There's normal food in there too. I guess that is no. normal food. I mean, it's just, it, he probably has a bomb ass brownie recipe that's like, just so you know, you could change out the regular butter for something else in here. And I bet they're amazing. I bet so. But anyway, if you see this one and you don't mind red blends, pick it up. It's a good blend. 
if you are like me and sweeter blends and that's not really your thing, maybe don't pick it up unless you want, really want to try it. Okay. So we have our wine. We've talked about our scary topic. Tyler, what's your gruesome murder? So my case is the case of the Chicago Rippers, also known as the Ripper Crew. Crew? Yeah. And notice I said Rippers, plural. Yeah, no, I picked up on that. Also, any of our listeners, did you think about Vampire Diaries there for just a second? You know, Stefan being a Ripper. Shout out to you guys. I love you. Tyler, tell us this horrible story. I just had to, you know, talk about Vampire Diaries for a second. Okay, yeah, that's a show I've never seen. But anyways, my sources are the Wikipedia page for The Ripper Crew, a book called Evil Serial Killers in the Minds of Monsters by Charlotte Grieg. Okay, Charlotte, dang, you wrote the book that we're all curious about, but we don't really want to read. That's scary. From the couple pages I read, it's a good book. So if y'all find this one, it was written in like, I think 2005 is when it came out. Let us know. It's like, Let us know what you think. She just dives into the minds of serial killers. Yeah, and it's like different murderers and serial killers are profiled throughout it. Like the Chicago Rippers, that starts on page like 141. Yeah, I mean, it sounds horrific, but also interesting. Yep. An article in All That's Interesting by Katie Serena, which we've used a lot of Katie's articles before. I recognized her name. I was like, oh, Katie. And then a blog on the A&E Real Crime blog by C.M. Frankie. So on May 23rd, 1981, a gang in Chicago that called themselves the Ripper Crew, that's when they carried out their first known murder. On that day, they abducted a 28-year-old single mother named Linda Sutton. Ten days later, her body was found in a field in Villa Park, Illinois. She'd been mutilated, and her left breast had been amputated. Police, in coming across her body and this scene, they knew this was the work of some kind of sexual sadist, but they didn't really have anything to go on. So Linda's murder went cold. That was really fast. It was like immediately cold. Yeah, they, there wasn't anything they could get on. And it was almost a full year later that the Chicago Rippers struck again. On May 15th of 1982, Lorraine Borowski, she is up bright and early. She's getting ready for work. She's 21 years old. She's a secretary at a real estate office in the Chicago suburbs. She's leaving her house, like leaving her apartment to go walk to work. She doesn't live too, too far away. And as she's walking up to her office, she's grabbed suddenly by these strong hands and she's dragged into a van that just speeds off. So she's full on abducted off the street in the morning on the way to work. That's so scary because it's like no warning, just snatched off the street. Yeah, really the only sign of what happened to those that didn't see it. And I don't know if there were any witnesses who saw the actual kidnapping, but on the sidewalk, her keys, her shoes were scattered. So it looked like there'd been some kind of brief struggle, but that's it. So her coworkers coming into the office they're walking up and they're seeing these shoes and these keys. Maybe they recognize them as belonging to Lorraine, but that's it. That's all that's left of her. The perpetrators, they then drove to a nearby motel where Lorraine was raped and murdered. Her body was discovered five months later in a cemetery in Clarendon Hills. 
and she'd been stabbed to death with either a knife or an ice pick, and she'd also had one of her breasts amputated. So these two murders, they were the work of the Ripper crew that I kind of mentioned earlier. But what, what is the Ripper crew? Who are they? They are this satanic cult and this gang who, in the 80s, they abducted and murdered multiple women just full-on at random throughout the Chicago area. Like, just for the hell of it? Sounds like it, yeah. So the group's leader was a man named Robin Gecht, and he had coerced three of his followers, Edward Schweitzer, and two brothers, Andrew and Thomas Cocorales, and... His followers assisted him with these macabre murders and mutilations. But the thing is, on the outside, like we see too often in these horrifying, like, brutal, gruesome serial killer cases, they seemed just like normal people. Gecht was happily married, he had three kids, and his followers, they also had happy home lives and steady jobs. But one thing I did want to point out Gecht's steady job. He was a construction subcontractor outside of Chicago. Is this starting to feel any kind of similar? Construction subcontracting? Chicago? His boss was John Wayne Gacy. I knew you were going there. Oh my god. Why does Gacy have to come up so often? I have no idea, and I don't think either of them knew about each other's crimes and murders. I think it literally, two of the most gruesome, horrifying murderers were co-workers. That's really scary, man. This is like if you found out, oh, did you know Dahmer also worked at the same Safeway at the same time that Bundy did? Like, that is this kind of weird connection. And they had no idea. No idea. I mean, I didn't see anything that they had any idea of each other. There, like, there was no other thing that I saw that was a connection between them other than John Wayne Gacy was his boss. So, yeah. So, the Ripper crew, they would kidnap women from around the Chicago area. They would usually bring them back to Gecht's home, where in his home he'd built this makeshift satanic temple in his attic. And... This room, this makeshift temple, it was lit only by candles. It contained an altar that was like draped in red cloth, and the walls were painted with six red and black crosses. I mean, this is some like cliche horror movie shit. This sounds so creepy, and yes, it does. It sounds like a Halloween horror movie. Yeah. But this was real, which makes it it like super scary. Yeah, this all actually happened. So this attic, it was where the murders happened. Gecht would stand over the victims and his three followers. He would read passages from the Satanic Bible, and while he would read them, his followers would rape or torture the victims. My god, so it was a ritualistic ceremony. Oh yeah. After his victims had been mutilated, Gecht would then cut off one of their breasts cut it into several different pieces, and hand it to his followers. They would then eat the flesh as like a sacrament, and they would then masturbate onto the severed body parts, and then place the pieces of breast into a box. Yeah, when I said this was like the most gruesome thing I've ever read, uh, yeah. I keep trying to make a comment, and I I have none. I'm- this is- disgusting yeah this sounds made up 
It does. It's it sounds so like someone unbelievably was, horrible. Yeah. Like someone was writing a horror novel and so they were like, okay, what is the craziest thing I could think of? This is it. This is what they came up with, except this actually happened. And how have I never heard about this? Uh, same. I don't know if this is a case that other people are well aware of. And a lot of our listeners are like, oh my god, the Chicago Rippers. Or if this is one that, like us, you're like, what the actual fuck? How have I never heard of this? So then on May 29th, they abducted their third victim. Third known victim, I'll say. And this was Schwimach. And she was abducted from Hanover Park, which is a village in the Chicago area northwest of Villa Park. That night, she had been driving home from work from her family restaurant with her brother. They got in an argument in the car, and she, like, got out of the car. So she was like, I'm done. We had this argument. We're fighting. And then she vanished. Don't get out of the car if you're having a fight at night. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And her body was not found for another four months. Two weeks after they abducted Mach, they picked up a woman named Angel York in their van. They handcuffed her, slashed her breasts before throwing her out of the van while she was still alive. And she survived. She survived the attack. But her description of them, she didn't get a good look. It was dark. She didn't know what was happening. And so... It didn't really produce many leads. I wonder why they let her survive. That doesn't seem like their M.O. I'm glad she survived, number one. But it seems like something was off there. Yeah, I'm not sure if maybe, I don't know if there may have been like witnesses to her abduction they didn't account for. Or if, I don't know, if she put up more of a fight. I, I don't think that would be a reason because... In other victims, it sounds like they very much also put up a fight. So right. I really don't know why they just threw Angel out. But the gang, they didn't strike for another two months after that. Then, on August 28th of 1982, the body of Sandra Delaware was discovered on the bank of the Chicago River. She'd been stabbed, strangled, and also had her left breast amputated. On September 8th, a 31-year-old named Rose Davis she was found in an alley, and she'd suffered pretty much identical injuries as Delaware, but she also had hatchet wounds all across her body. They're just getting more and more violent. Yeah. And she was discovered in the Gold Coast neighborhood, which is a really wealthy area of the city, and it was on the same day of her abduction and murder. She was found fast. She was. And then came their very last crime. On December 6th of 1982, an 18-year-old named Beverly Washington, she was found near a railroad track outside of Chicago. She had been beaten, she was bruised, her chest had multiple slash wounds across it, and her left breast had also been amputated. But despite these injuries and all of her blood loss, she was alive. This sounds like one they didn't mean to leave her alive. Yeah, I think this I think they thought Beverly was dead. She wasn't. Because as Gecht and his crew, his gang, were disposing of her, they assumed either, again, she already was dead, or very soon would be. 
But because she survived, she was able to give a full detailed description of what happened to her, a full description of Gekt, as well as the van that they'd kidnapped her in. Good. It was enough to lead to their arrests. Without her, who knows how long they could have gone on doing this. Oh yeah. So when Gekt was first arrested, he actually had to be released because police didn't really have enough evidence that connected him to the crimes. They knew it was him from Beverly's description and everything, but they didn't have enough like physical evidence that tied him to it. But they kept the investigation on him even after releasing him. And in their investigation, the police discovered that in 1981, he'd rented a room in a motel along with three of his friends and each of them having adjoining rooms. And when they talked to the hotel manager, the manager told them that they'd had these loud parties and appeared to be in some kind of cult. And so through that, the police were like, okay, we need to find these three friends. Yeah. They're connected. And they did. They found Edward Schweitzer. And the Cocorales brothers. And when they were interrogated, Thomas Cocorales, he full-on confessed. He told them how he and the others had taken women back to Gek's place, where Gek had his so-called satanic temple. There, they would rape and torture the women and amputate their breasts with a wire garrote. Oh my god, no. That like a guitar string? Yeah. And... Pretty much as soon as they were in custody, they're telling the story, all of his followers also turned on him. And so as soon as everyone's in custody, the crew is telling the story, and they all pretty much turn on Gekt. They claimed that he had supernatural powers, and he was able to just make them do anything he wanted them to, including the murder and torture. That he had somehow, like, possessed them, and just had the, yeah, bullshit. It sounds like this plan that they had pre put together for if we get caught we're all turning on him and this is our story well one of the things to remember though i don't know how much gekt was actually hands-on involved because from everything i researched he would be you know reading his passages and stuff while his followers were raping and torturing and murdering his victims so he took a page out of the manson book yeah very much So they're all like turning on him, saying how he made them do all of this. And in doing so, they're full on confessing to the crimes. But throughout all this, Gekt is maintaining his innocence. He said he never hurt the women. He never forced anyone to do so. He was basically just there. And they did the murdering and torturing and raping. The Chicago Rippers were also suspects in the disappearance of Carol Papas. She was the wife of a Chicago Cubs pitcher, Milt Papas, and she disappeared on September 11th, 1982, so right in the middle of their murder spree. Yeah, when they were picking up women. But her body wasn't recovered until five years later, and her death was ruled an accident at the time. But in all, they were suspected in the disappearances of more than 18 women in Illinois between 1981 and 1982. 18 women. Yeah. So the Cocorales brothers and Schweitzer, they all confess to their crimes, but again, Gecht is saying, I'm innocent, I didn't do anything. And after their series of trials, they weren't able to get Gecht on murder. Because from everything it sounded like, he 
didn't, he wasn't the one murdering his victims, but they did get him on the attempted murder and rape of Beverly Washington because she survived. And she was like, yeah, he was there. He was a part of it. And so he received a sentence of 120 years and he'll be eligible for parole in 2042, which I think he'll be like in his late 80s or 90s at that point. So dead probably. So is it one of those things that they gave him a really severe sentence on the one thing they could convict him on? It sounds like it. But also, I mean, it was attempted murder and rape. So 120 years. I mean, we've definitely seen sentences a lot shorter than that for a lot worse. We have. You're absolutely right. So Andrew Cucarelli's, he was sentenced to death. And he was actually executed by lethal injection on March 17th of 1999. Edward Schweitzer was also sentenced to death, but his sentence was commuted by Illinois Governor George H. Ryan. He did a last-minute commutation on all death sentences in Illinois in 2003. In doing so, Andrew Cocorelli's was Governor Ryan's only execution, and... Cocorelli's was also the very last person executed in Illinois. To this day? Yeah. Thomas Cocorelli's was convicted of murder, but only sentenced to life in prison because of his initial confession. He was the first one to confess and really give the police all of the detail and connect everything. So because of that, they took death penalty off the table and he got life. Since then, though... His life sentence was commuted, and he was scheduled for release on September 30th of 2017. But at that time in 2017, his parole was denied by the officials in Illinois. But on March 29th of 2019, he was released on parole after serving half of his 70-year life sentence. So he's out right now. Yeah, Thomas Cocorellis is out The Wikipedia page actually gave his address, which made me very uncomfortable. That's not cool. Yeah, I mean, he's living in what sounds like a halfway home, essentially, for, like, prisoners returning to life. But I was like, whoa, okay, that is all right. Yeah, he's the only one who's been released. And yeah, that is the case of the Chicago Rippers, one of the most horrifying, gruesome horrifying cases i have ever read and researched they murdered at least seven women very likely a lot more than that i'm sure there were more because when you think about how much time was in between discovering the bodies and some of them it taking so long like there Mm -hmm. there could be more victims out there well and also the gaps in when they were murdering their victims they would go from almost what it sounded like a victim a week to having months in between or even a full year in between the first and second known victims. Yeah. Yeah. There are more victims, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad I still have wine because that was a lot. That was gruesome. Well, buckle your seatbelt because I'm about to take the gruesome truck and ram it into the house. I don't know. It's about to get worse. Okay. Okay, let's tell us about your gruesome murder case. The gruesome murders that I'm going to talk about were done by John Edward Robinson, who's also known as the Internet's first serial killer. The sources I used, an article on ABC News by Brooke Strangeland, Andrew Parparella, and Injoli Francis, 
as well as an article by Delaney R. Bartlett. She hosts a true crime YouTube channel at Daily Di- thedailydigest.com, and her article was extremely helpful in doing my research. Is it digest like die, or digest like Reader's Digest? Digest. D-I-G-E-S-T. Oh. I'm just thinking. Branding. So, John Edward Robinson was the first man that we know of at least, to use the internet to lure his victims to their deaths. However, on the outside, Robinson seemed to be a very upstanding member of Pleasant Valley Farms community, which is a wealthy suburb in Kansas City. Oh, that full-on Pleasant Valley. I'm like, no, that's some shit goes down there. Any suburb that sounds Stepfordy, I'm like, no, that place has some dark shit going on. Anything that's like Sunset Valley Happy Farm Town. It's like, mm that's Murderville. Nothing happy. So Robinson was married. He had four children. He volunteered as a scoutmaster, a t-ball and volleyball coach, and he was also a Sunday school teacher. He didn't look dangerous. He looked like this very mild-mannered, like, grandfather. So maybe it's just because it's Kansas and it's a horrible killer and that he's just like this family man. I'm already getting like BTK vibes. 100%. I got a lot of BTK vibes when I was doing this one. Kansas, what the fuck? I also realized my last case was in Kansas and it was around this same area. So. Oh, yeah, because uh, Terry was murdered in outside of Overland Park. Yeah. But the reality was that Robinson was a very different man than he appeared on the outside. He was constantly cheating on his wife. He beat her. He starved his pet dog and his horses. And he was also engaging in multiple counts of embezzlement, fraud, theft, and check forgery. I mean, some of those crimes are not like the others. Like beating your wife and starving your animals and check forgery. I feel like are a couple different levels. I mean, none of them are okay, but check forgery is, I think, a little down the ladder of fucked up. But it's all on the ladder of fucked up. You gotta take one step on the first rung to get to the top. Yeah, and a lot of these things are very much intertwined in the rest of what I'm gonna tell you he was doing. God, he just... I'm already getting this profile of this, like, monster douche who just has this, like, napoleon complex or something of like needing to control and be the fucking master of the world in his life that's not off completely so in the early 80s robinson formed a consulting firm this was a fake business and it was named equal and in 1984 paula godfrey answered a help wanted ad to work at equal when she was hired Paula told her friends and family that Robinson was going to send her to some training in Texas, but she was never seen again. Her parents filed a missing persons report with the Overland Park police, and Robinson was actually questioned, but he claimed he had no idea where she was. Like, she just never showed up. I have no idea. So she's telling everyone, like, oh, I'm going to training for work, disappears, and he's like, I don't know. She just disappeared in transit. Who knows? He was just like, I have no idea. A few days later, Paula's parents received a typewritten note signed by her, and it said that she was okay, and that she needed some time away from her family. So since Paula seemed like she was alive, and she was a legal adult, police dropped their investigation. They were like, you got a letter. She's cool. 
Oh my god. See, stuff like that, it always baffles me because I know the legality of the situation, she is a full-on adult and can do that. But I'm also like, okay, if y'all got a text from me that was just like, hey, I need some me time, I'm going off the grid, y'all be like, sorry, no fucking way, that's not happening, something is amiss. Right, exactly. So while all of this was going on, Robinson also invented a charity women's outreach program. He was claiming that he wanted to offer single mothers and women who were down on their luck with jobs and other help. He reached out to some hospitals, a few homeless shelters, and other places where he might be able to find a woman in need. In early 1985, Robinson heard from a hospital who referred him to Lisa Stassi and her infant daughter Tiffany. They were staying at a Kansas City battered women's shelter, and so Robinson reached out to Lisa, and he said his name was John Osborne, and he promised her a job, housing, and daycare for her daughter. Oh my god, I hate where this is going. Lisa needed help, and this sounded like the offer. It sounded like what she needed, like, a, you know, and so she said, okay. He then took her to a roadway inn in Overland Park, and he told her that he would be sending her and her daughter to Chicago for job training, and that she would need to sign a few blank sheets of paper with her name so he could let her family know where she was. Her f- oh, I don't like that at all. Yeah, Her family members, especially her sister-in-law, they were like, something is amiss about this. They didn't trust Robinson. They told Lisa not to go. They were like, don't take this job. But Lisa trusted Robinson. So she got into his car. She had her baby Tiffany with her. And she was never seen again. Her family also said that one day after she left, they got a call from her. And she was crying hysterically. She told them that she had to sign four pieces of paper. And her mother-in-law was like, don't sign, don't sign anything. And Lisa just continued to cry. And she finally settled down. And then she's overheard saying, here they come now, and hung up the phone. That was the last time they heard from her. It's so fucked up because this is the kind of opportunity that for her is like, yes, this is the helping hand I need to get out of where I am now. This is the big break, the opportunity I've been waiting for and working for. This is that step up to get out of the women's shelter, to start my own job, be able to care for my daughter and have my own place. And so, of course, any warning signs she sees, she's going to be blinded by the possibility of this opportunity. Yeah, she's had some bad things happen to her, and so... These warning signs, she's just like, you know what? No, it's fine. It's fine. Well, because she needs this to be true and needs this to happen. So the next day, Lisa's sister-in-law called the roadway in to check on her. They told her that the room that she stayed in had been paid for by the company Equal and signed by John Robinson. So her sister-in-law went to the police while her brother went to Equal's office to confront Robinson about where Lisa was. And Robinson threw him out of the office. Later that evening, Robinson told his brother and sister-in-law that he found an infant that they could adopt. They had been having trouble having children and, guess, were looking to, to adopt. 
And Robinson told them that the mother had committed suicide. And so this baby needed to be adopted. He handed over what looked like legal adoption papers along with $5,500 in cash. And, you know, they knew the adoption was semi-illegal, but the forms looked legal. Like, they were like, we're kind of doing this not in the right way, but we're adopting this child. They had no I mean, idea yeah. any any other situation was going on. Well, because I'm sure they're also like, you know, it's situation. They've wanted a kid so bad. They need this to be true. So, yeah, they're seeing warning signs. They're seeing how this is sketch. But it's not sketch enough. You know, they have these forms. It's not like he's suddenly showing up with a child being like, here's a kid. I found it. Bye. Like, and nothing official. Right. Oh, my God. God, this dude's a fucking monster. And so he hands over the baby to his brother, a healthy infant girl, and that was that. So later, Lisa's sister-in-law started receiving typewritten letters signed by Lisa claiming she was fine. So again, there wasn't really any evidence that a crime had taken place. The police dropped the missing persons investigation once these letters started to come in. Even though the family knows they talked to her that she signed blank papers and blank documents yeah it's like everyone knows something is amiss yet the police are just like no she's fine she's not missing she's reaching out to you i feel like even in this case they could be like okay well then do a welfare check on her we're worried this isn't like her even if nothing seems criminal to you we need to do a welfare check on her and so you need to find her yeah, but see, that's the thing. Like, she's not at home. They don't know where she is. Yeah. Uh, I guess I don't know how welfare checks work if you don't know where to tell the police to go to. I don't know. In 1987, a woman from Wichita Falls, Texas, named Catherine Clampett, answered an ad in the newspaper for what to her looked like an absolute dream job. It had a lot of travel, a new wardrobe. So she packed her bags and moved to Kansas, and then soon she was missing. Her family filed a missing persons report in June, but police could find no evidence that Robinson was involved at all in her disappearance. Not even with the job ad? Up to this point, all these other women had answered job ads, and he's not being being found responsible. Yes, that's true, but at some point, are they not like... Well, they know he's the one posting the job ads, or his company is, because they've connected with the first two, so I don't see why it would be indifferent with this one. I don't know that they're necessarily making the connection between all of these. I mean, and I know we're looking back at it after the fact and having the dots already connected for us. Totally. But to me, it seems kind of obvious that you'd be like, well, we've had three missing cases of young women answering job ads that have all basically disappeared. Their families filed missing persons but you know we later canceled those but they're all to this same person doing these job ads like and sending letters yeah like this is suspicious as fuck it is and i've got to think that the connection's not being made because otherwise i'm like there's obviously something going on yeah and i mean maybe it's because the previous missing persons cases have been closed so no one's thinking about them so There's not any connections to make because it's not like they have three active missing persons cases that are all linked to this guy. It's, oh, they have two that are solved and done with. Okay, here's 
a new one, but again, just one on its own is a woman answered a job ad and went missing. Well, and who's not to say that three different officers had these placed on their desk? They're not all happening at the exact same time, and they're just going to talk to Robinson, so maybe they're not talking to each other. Like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but like I said, I like to believe that there's a simple explanation, but it could also just be the fact that maybe they're literally just not paying attention. Okay, well, Mr. Sweet and Low has some shit going on. Soon afterwards, Robinson was finally sent to prison for fraud. In 1991, he transferred to a Missouri prison for fraud and violating probation. He had been caught multiple times, and this was the first time he actually got a prison sentence before it was like probation or, you know, other like small things. So he finally went to jail. Well, and what kind of fraud are we talking about? He never really worked an honest job, and he was always stealing and embezzling and in some way, shape, and form in every place of employment he was working at. I didn't dive into his background because that's not what we're talking about here, but he was doing a ton of shit and finally got caught for something. Well, caught and sentenced to prison time. He'd been caught multiple times. So while he was in prison, the prison administrators noticed that he seemed to be like a really smart dude. And so they put him to work in their computer systems where he, impl- yeah, I'm like, why would you do that? It's just, that's not a good idea. Well, and especially a, a one dude that like embezzles and fraud, like, yeah, like someone who's full on at this white collar, like money crime. Why are you going to be like, you know what? He's going to be in charge of the prison computer system. You know what? Should we give him like the finance department too? Like, why not? Well, whatever he did, he implemented a system that saved the prison hundreds of thousands of dollars. And here in the Missouri prison's computer lab is probably where Robinson was first introduced to the internet. Because this is like 1991. The internet is new. And so he's working on these computers and he's like, oh, this internet thing. Kind of interesting. You can talk to people here. See, as someone who was born in 1993 and whose earliest memories of the internet are probably maybe 1998, but like that's of the computer. So let's say post 2000s when it comes to actual internet. I have no fucking idea what the what the internet was in this time. I mean, I remember dial up and I remember that, nope, you you can't be on the computer. I have to make a call on the landline. And you can't do both. And, like, I've seen, you know, when you see, like, oh, this was Google's first logo in 1994, like, what the web page looked like. I've seen stuff like that. But it almost sounds like trying to, I don't know, do the internet on, like, a shitty, like, school calculator. And I'm like, what could you actually do? Not much. Do they have, do you have AIM even? Can you message people? Yes. So chat rooms in the 90s were big. They were also big in the early 2000s. I know. I was on A-plus kids chat. We're going to get into some chats that Robinson was in here in a little bit. Oh, Lord. So while he was in prison, he met the prison librarian, Beverly Bonner. When he was released in 1993, Bonner divorced her husband and moved into the apartment that Robinson rented She told her friends and relatives that she'd taken a job with Robinson that required a lot of traveling. 
And so she had all of her mail, including her alimony checks, forwarded to a P.O. box because she wasn't going to be at home anymore. And like they weren't going to be at the apartment. So she got a P.O. box, but she was never heard from again. However, somebody was still cashing her alimony checks. Robinson at this time started using the internet to find his victims. He joined BDSM chat rooms and message boards using the name Slave Master. That's creative. He set up five different computers in his home, and he had several monikers online. So Slave Master wasn't his only one, but that was, I think, his most used. Five computers in your home in the early 90s? Yeah, to be on all those different chat rooms. That one sounds fucking expensive, because I feel like computers were like thousands of dollars back then and like stupid expensive. And... I feel like that would be so suspicious to, I don't know, the Best Buy employee who has to come help you set them up, or I don't know what companies were a thing then. But like, because that's not normal. I mean, nowadays, you have a big ass house and five computers in it, whatever. I mean, that's, you don't need that many unless you're like a 12 person family. But I feel like that alone would be enough for someone to be like, hey, police, I know, like, this isn't an actual crime, but it's suspicious enough to, like, warrant, like, a, hmm, let's look into this. Five computers at this one dude's house. And the police would be like, that's weird. I've never even seen five computers at one place other than the library. Let's go look. But he's also this, like, businessman. I, I don't know. It maybe didn't seem suspicious and maybe he was setting him up like or maybe again the police were like oh he worked in our our computer lab he's he's good i don't know he just really likes oregon trail and wants to just make sure he doesn't get dysentery so he starts all the games at the same time (laughs) he plays five games at once he's gonna win at least one of them he's gonna surf the dallas or whatever dies from dysentery in every game so in 1994 he befriended sheila faith in one of these chat rooms And he was once again portraying himself as this wealthy businessman. He offered Faith a well-paying job and payment for her disabled teen daughter Debbie's medical care. So he's just playing into these women who need help for their families. See, one thing that is also a red flag for me that I feel like it's a red flag. He's this businessman. He's portraying himself as this guy who has control in his life is this like big bad businessman people like that are not going to be the dom person in a bdsm relationship he's going to want his like balls clamped and to be slapped and stepped on in heels because if he has that kind of power in his real life he's going to want that like submissive play in his sex life. So you say all of that, and we're just a few years removed from Fifty Shades of Grey. And in that, I mean, yes, I'll admit it, I've read it. It's horrible, both the writing and the concept. But it is about a man who's this wealthy, super rich guy who's a dom. And as unrealistic as that may seem, Clearly, that type of fantasy enticed enough people for those books to sell millions and the movies. Like, so when you look at when you look at that now, I granted we're talking many years apart, but this situation that he created not too far removed from that. So 
No, I get it. I'm just saying in the real world, your, like, big boss tech CEO is not going to be the one who wants to hold the whip. He's going to be the one who wants to be, like, tied down and, like, I don't know, his balls clamped and goldfish put in his mouth. (laughs) Either the fish or the snack. Either one. But, like, that's this shit. I know. I know. But you need to remember chat rooms. How often were we really who we said we are in a chat room? You're creating a a fantasy world. But Sheila believed this fantasy world that Robinson was putting forward. And she moved her and her daughter from their Colorado home to the Kansas City area. Sheila also had their mail, including her social security checks, forwarded to a P.O. box. They were never seen or heard from again, but someone was still cashing in the social security checks. Oh, her and her daughter were never seen from again? Right. Oh my god. God, because so far, his victims have all been adult women, and the baby from one of the first victims was, he, like, did the weird pseudo-fake adoption. Yeah, so his brother is raising that child. How can so many people disappear around one person, and it still is happening? I know, it just keeps going, because the next... He met a young college student. Her name was Isabella Lawika. They met online. She dropped out of college and moved from her home in Indiana to the Kansas City area to be with him. And she told her parents that she was taking an internship at Robinson's business. He put her up in an apartment and she enrolled in community college. And she started going by the name Isabella Lawika Robinson. She even wore a wedding band, and although Robinson did purchase a marriage certificate, it was never picked up, but she also signed a slave contract with Robinson. So she was not, like, she was around for a while, and again, I mean, Robinson still has a wife, so, like, all of this is, like, that secret hidden life shit. I forgot that he had, like, a wife and kids and shit. Yeah, he has a wife, kids, so very much these BTK vibes of double life. How does someone have that much time to have a double life? Like, for real, I barely, I don't do anything in my life, and I feel like I don't have enough time to, like, watch TV, and yet people full-on have, like, second and third families, who has that amount of time and commitment? How do you convince two families that it is normal for you to be away half the time and still work a job? Actually, this is an interesting thing because I feel like a lot of the excuse and stuff for like, oh, I travel for business, so I'm gone like three days a week or whatever. I wonder how many people with secret second families who are a traveling person have been exposed by the COVID pandemic when no one's traveling, especially for business. I wonder how many people are like, well, honey, I gotta travel. No, don't you remember? The state's closed. You can't leave the state. So you can't be traveling for business. Where are you going? When you said exposed, I definitely thought you meant to COVID, but also that. I mean, no, no, exposed like, you've been exposed. Yeah, that's a good point. I bet a lot of people were caught for cheating and having double lives when all travel stopped. Because you couldn't go anywhere. And it's like, which person are you not seeing? Your wife or your girlfriend or your wife or your second wife? I know. Anyway, 
One of the really weird things is that Isabella would only communicate with her family via email. And then in 1999, she told her friends she was going on a trip with Robinson, and she was never seen again. But her family kept getting emails from her, from her account. See, this is why this wouldn't work nowadays, because you'd be like, hold on, I gotta FaceTime you just to, like, show me cooking. Like, we FaceTime even without... We FaceTime every week because of the podcast. But even without that, we FaceTime each other all the time because you'll be like, ooh, show me what you bought. Or, ooh, let me show you these sweet potato tacos I made. Or literally when we're just cooking dinner. I mean, yeah. And so this wouldn't work. Also, I feel like it is a very tricky thing to be able to fully match the way someone speaks in email or text or something without making the other person suspicious because there are little quirks we all do that you may not notice but you would notice if they changed you're getting a little bit ahead of me oh just a few weeks after isabella went missing robinson befriended suzette truton also in a bdsm chat room he offered her his his same spiel it was a well-paying job and this time it was for caring for his father However, the the reality was his father had been dead for a long time, and he was also going to take her traveling on his yacht. You know, she's going to take care of his dad. He's this really rich guy. She gets to ride on the yacht. So she's like, hell yeah. His yacht in Kansas? What's he going to do? Like float around the pond? He's a rich guy. He probably flies a plane to the Gulf. I don't know, Tyler. It was all bullshit. <laughs> Just say RV if you're in Kansas. Like, yacht. So she packed up her things and her two Pekingese dogs and relocated to Kansas. Robinson put her up in a motel room. I just realized I think my last three cases have happened in Kansas. Because my movie one was in Cold Blood, the Clutter family. Yes, it was. You're honestly just... <laughs> You're dragging Kansas. I'm just surfing the Kansas newspapers. Okay, sorry. So Robinson puts her up in a motel room and had her dogs boarded. He told her the hotel did not allow pets. So he's like, we'll board them. After she did some work at his office, he made her sign an extensive slave contract as well as several blank pages of stationery. So wait, did she also know she was like coming in for BDSM or did she just think she was like going to be like nursing his dad? And he was like, by the way, do you want to wear high heels and step on my balls? And she's like, (laughs) okay, but like, let me put my morphine up and like my Dramamine and my, I don't know, like toilet for your sick dad. Okay. So many things. Tyler, they met in a BDSM chat room. So yes, she was fully aware. Number two... She didn't ever actually help his father because he didn't have one. No, I know that, but she moved there with all her shit preparing to, so... Okay, but also, so they're in a BDSM chat room. She's like, yeah, flog me or whatever. And he's like, that's hot. So do you want a job taking care of my old ailing dad? Would that be hot for you? And she's like, I have two of the yappiest, ugliest dogs in the world. We can come to Kansas. Like, what is he saying in these chat rooms that he is so alluring that people are like, you know what? I could not only uproot my life and move like 600 miles, but I could do that to Kansas for this guy I oh, met yeah. in a chat room. Oh, the, the fact that he convinced so many women to uproot their lives and move 
them and their children. It's like, it's mind boggling. I don't know what kinds of things he was saying in these chat rooms, but it was working, unfortunately. You know, we say that, but one thing I will say is, you know, in the beginning, talking about how this is stuff that a lot of these women needed to be true. It was their big break, their big opportunity. And also, if this is kind of the earlier days of the internet, there probably aren't as many social rules or like known rules about like, no, you're not going to fucking trust something you hear in a chat room. Because I've moved across the country for a job. You've moved across the country for a job. I mean, we've all done that. And maybe in the mid 90s, a job like that coming through a chat room, a chat room is not going to be as much of a red flag as it would now where i'm like the equivalent of my head is someone pinging me on grinder being like you want a job and i'm like new hampshire here i come that's a good point we don't know the internet at this point in time we don't know that that people are on there not being themselves and that are using it to lure victims like we don't know these things yet because i mean supposedly he's one of the first yeah jesus lord Suzette continued to keep in contact with her mom. She would call her on the phone, um, as well as another friend via email. And on March 1st, 2000, the day they were supposed to leave for this round-the-world trip on the yacht, Robinson checked her out of the motel room and picked up her dogs from the border. After that, no one heard from her. And strangely enough, an animal control officer was called to an area around the Robinson home they said that there were two Pinkanese dogs left abandoned in their carriers without collars or identification. Oh my god, he just left them in their carriers in like a field? Yeah, and then called animal control. So after her mom didn't hear from Suzette for days, her mom called the numbers that Suzette had provided. Robinson, who at this time was supposed to be traveling the world with Suzette, answered the phone. And what he didn't know is he was being recorded because Suzette's mom had reached out to the police about all this fishy shit going on. And so she's asking him all these questions. Robinson's like, no, don't, you don't, there's no need for you to worry. She actually ran off with someone else. She fell in love with this other guy. She actually stole some of my money. They're out like on the yacht. She probably can't make any calls. That That's why you haven't heard from her, but you don't need to worry. She's just fallen in love and run away. Um. Oh, and stolen his yacht and money, but he's not going to call the police and be like, um, this woman robbed me and stole my yacht. Also, is no one questioning why he's this rich man with the yacht businessman and he's putting me up in a damn Motel 6? You're right. <laughs> Suzette's mom was like, I'm not buying this bullshit because she was so close with her daughter and she's like, no, no, no. If she fell in love and ran off with some other guy, I would know about it. You know, because, like, she's been talking to me about this whole situation. For real. So soon after this conversation that her mom has with Robinson, she starts receiving typewritten letters signed by Suzette. But she was really suspicious because these letters did not sound like her daughter. Two of the biggest things that were just, like, red flags for her Suzette didn't know how to type, and she was not good at spelling, yet all of these letters were nearly perfect in the way they were typed, spelled, everything. And in one of the letters that she received, one of the dog's names was misspelled, 
And that is literally oh. like me spelling Charlie's name with a Y. Like, this would not happen. She's not going to misspell her dog's name. Yeah, she might misspell everything else, but she's not going to misspell her dog's name. And in fact, she's spelling everything else right and not her dog's name. Exactly. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's clearly not her. So this is when her mom files a missing persons report with the Lenexa police. The Lenexa police were actually taking the case seriously. Good. And they started to dig into Robinson's past. And this is when they found a trail of missing women in his wake. Lisa and Tiffany Stastny, Paula Godfrey, and now Suzette Trudent. There are more on the list, but these are the ones that had missing persons reports. And shit, this all started in the early 80s. It's been almost 20 years at this point of women disappearing around him. Right. Around this same time, there were two women that came to the police with reports of sexual battery against Robinson. They both told pretty similar stories that they had been lured by Robinson on a BDSM chat room where he paid where he made promises of these well-paying jobs, international travel, but instead when they arrived, he sexually assaulted them and in one case stole hundreds of dollars in sex toys. So this oh, this oh. theft charge and these women coming in who had gotten away, this gave police probable cause to search Robinson's property. Fuck yes. How did it take I mean, I guess I don't know what other things would have given them probable cause to search, but it just blows my mind that how it took so long for them to finally get something that's probable cause to search it. Well, this is a different a different police unit. It, it's a different yeah. city, and it literally could have been one person that was just like, well, let's just double check. Oh, shit, he's attached to all of this. And so maybe it took someone in a different precinct to make the connection. Yeah. You know what? Thumbs up to the Lenexa police detective who started putting this shit together. Seriously. no one else was. On June 2nd, 2000, police arrived in nine separate vehicles to Robinson's residence to arrest him for sexual assault. They also had search warrants, not only for his home and property, but also for a storage unit he rented and his family farm in Lacine, Missouri. At his home, they found these five computers, as well as several blank sheets of stationery signed by Lisa Stastny. Stassi. In the storage unit, they found social security cards, driver's license, and other paperwork, including those signed slave contracts belonging to Suzette and Isabella. Isabella had not been reported missing at this time, and she was not on law enforcement's radar. But finding these items of hers, they were like, oh shit, she's probably missing too. The next day, the police raided the Robinson family farm, and there, forensic investigators found two 55-gallon metal barrels. Oh shit. As Sergeant Roth was rolling one of the barrels out, it fell, and when it fell down, a thin line of some red liquid trickled out. And he said it was that moment they just knew. That was blood. Oh my Oh my god. They opened both of these fifty-five gallon metal barrels, and each of them contained a body of a woman in an extremely advanced state of decay. These women would later be identified as Suzette Truden and Isabella Lewicka. Isabella, who they just realized, oh shit, she's probably missing too. Yes. 
Both of the women had been killed with a blow to the head by a small blunt object, most likely a hammer. So the Kansas police contacted the Missouri police and they obtained a search warrant for a storage unit that Robinson had rented in Raymore. Inside this storage unit, they found three more barrels containing the decomposed remains of Sheila and Debbie Faith and Beverly Bonner. So, Sheila was the mom and her disabled daughter, Debbie, and Beverly was the librarian from the prison. All three of them had suffered a blow to the head from a small blunt object, again, that appeared to be a hammer. After authorities recovered the bodies from the farm, they received a tip that Donald Robinson, which was Robinson's brother, and his wife had adopted a child in the 80s. Chicago police went to Donald's home and spoke to the parents. They took the adoption papers, as well as had the Robinsons submit their DNA samples, fingerprints, footprints. And through DNA, authorities confirmed that his 15-year-old adopted daughter who had been given the name Heather Tiffany Robinson, was in fact Tiffany Stassi. It, oh it was God. later at a news conference that they said, it is our belief that this adopted family had no knowledge of any criminal activity relating to the adoption of baby Tiffany. They believed they were the adoptive parents of this little girl, but was an, it was not a legal adoption. So the brother was another one of Robinson's victims. So like I said earlier... They had no idea that he had murdered this child's mother and that he was faking all of this. They just knew that they were doing a semi-illegal adoption, but they had what they thought were legit papers. Yeah. I'm just imagining being Tiffany and being 15 and all of a sudden, you know, maybe full on knowing like you were adopted, but realizing no... Your uncle murdered your mother, kidnapped you, and gave you to the parents who've raised you who don't know anything. Like, they're also going through this horrible realization, too. But just finding that out about yourself. Yeah. And she did an interview, I believe, with 2020 later. And she was just saying, obviously, how difficult this was, but that she had always had this off feeling around her uncle like she was never truly comfortable around him so maybe on some level like subconsciously she had memories i mean i know she was an infant and like can't really have memories but we're still learning the way things that happen in childhood affect people for the rest of their lives so i'm not gonna sit here and say she didn't remember on some level you know i mean trauma is a powerful thing that we don't understand so it would not surprise me if some level of that trauma was buried away in the back of her mind and kind of sealed but kept So in 2002, John Robinson stood trial in Kansas for the murders of Truden, Lewicka, and Stassi, as well as other charges such as fraud, forgery, kidnapping, and interfering with parental custody, and this was for kidnapping Tiffany. After, at the time, the longest criminal trial in Kansas history, in 2003, he was convicted on all counts. He received two death sentences for the murders of Truden and Lewicka. And because Stassi had been killed before Kansas reinstated the death penalty for her murder, he received a sentence of life imprisonment. He also received 5 to 20 years for interfering with parental custody, 
20 years for kidnapping Truden and seven months for theft. After his conviction, he stood trial in Missouri for the murders of Godfrey, Clampett, Bonner, and the Faiths, the mom and daughter. Yeah. For these, he agreed to plead guilty in order to avoid the death penalty, but he did not agree to lead authorities to the bodies of Godfrey, Clampett, or Stassi. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So in 2015, the Kansas State Supreme Court vacated the Truden and Stassi murder convictions on technicalities, but they upheld the Wick- the Lewicka conviction and with it, the death sentence that he got from that one. So to this day, Robinson remains on death row there in Kansas, and the bodies of Godfrey, Clampett, and Stassi have never been found. Oh my god. That is the case of serial killer John Edward Robinson. I don't really have words. This one, I think, yes, it fit gruesome to a T. And I know we've done more than just this case with the, you know, bodies being found in barrels. And there's there's the Bear Brook barrel. Have we done Bear Brook? No, we've never done that one. And we should because it's it's fascinating, horrific. And it involves DNA testing and using, like, genealogy before, like, Golden yeah. State Killer. And it's actually the same woman. But I've there's a, there's a whole podcast on that case, and it's phenomenal. It's just called, like, the Bear Brook Murders or, or something along those lines. But there's something just insanely creepy and gruesome and vile about disposing of a body in a barrel and then keeping it. I'm just, your case is pure horror and horrifying. And I knew in the back of my mind as we were going through your case and we had all these victims disappearing, I I knew that our topic was gruesome murders and we hadn't, it'd been horrifying. It hadn't been gruesome in the level I knew you were going to go at and the way that you'd prepared us for. And so I was waiting and yet I was not at all prepared for that. Me either. This was a rough one. So many victims and so many probably missed opportunities because he was questioned. He was known. He was a criminal. He was doing stuff. Yet, because he had that whole nice guy, normal grandpa just doing some fraud shit on the side. Oh, well, he just, he owns this consulting company called Splenda. So, no, it can't be him. I, I feel like there was a lot of that. A lot of the, like, they didn't question him further from just, like, initial, like, oh, your employer's missing. I'm still wondering why the police office didn't make a connection when his employees kept missing. See, that's my thing like, is from the beginning because, but, I mean, again, I guess if with the level of importance they held the cases in, unless it's the same officer investigating and talking to him. Maybe it's not raising any red flags. I don't know how. I don't know how there's not some damn kind of keyword search of like, hmm, this is the third time we've talked to this guy from this company. Because Um, someone's missing. Yeah, but okay. Well, that wraps up October. Yes, it does. And thank y'all for listening. If y'all enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed our October Halloween spooktacular series of horror. Dear God, this closed it out. But okay. Again, yeah, if y'all enjoyed this, if y'all have enjoyed 
this month, uh, let us know. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Give us those five stars. Let us know what you think. And yeah. While you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Happy Halloween. Bye.